Good morning, everyone. I'm Rick, one of the elders here. Our, our pastor, Travis, and his family are visiting up north. And a couple of weeks ago, he'd asked me if I'd mind preaching. And I, I do like to preach. And I wouldn't consider myself to be a preacher, but I do like to share and, and think pretty deeply about God's Word. So I'm hoping that's what we'll do this morning. You'll notice that I have an outline that I've uh, given with the bulletin. And there's also a sheet of paper that has some scriptural references to affliction. And I'm assuming that I'm going to say some pretty challenging things this morning. And when you have spare time, you may refer to that sheet of paper about afflictions just to see the, the wideness of God's presentation of, of our affliction and how he is very involved with it. So... You may begin. I, I'm working with uh, with Patty to work on the PowerPoint. It's, we're trying to work through some things with it. So I want to talk to you this morning about the necessity to beware of the armies of unbelief. Tomorrow's the last day of 2018, and I'd like to give you a word of encouragement and a word of caution as we move into 2019. And this morning I want to remind us that the armies of unbelief will continue to be provoked by the truth of the Christian message in 2019. And they're provoked because this book, the Bible, and what is written in it, says that everything that the soldiers of disbelief believe about this world is wrong. And folks, not just wrong, but as wrong as wrong can be. That's why the armies of disbelief will continue to associate the Christian view of God with darkness, with ignorance, superstition, and irrationality. To them, the Christian worldview will remain completely and utterly unjustifiable because in their view, our view of God is completely irrational and absurd. So I think the main problem for atheists, then, is that suffering and evil are unjustifiable if the God that we say exists is the one who actually exists. How can evil and suffering exist if God is supposedly good, is their argument. Let me give you a couple of examples. In his book, Atheism, the Case Against God, George H. Smith argues that belief in God is irrational. He says, quote, it's not my purpose to convert people to atheism, but to demonstrate that the belief in God is irrational to the point of absurdity. If a person wishes to continue believing in that kind of a God, that is his prerogative, but he can no longer excuse his belief in the name of reason and moral necessity. Now, I want to give you three fairly famous atheists and their take on Christianity by quoting a couple of famous soldiers of unbelief, beginning with Richard Dawkins. I'm sure you've heard his name. He wrote, Life has no higher purpose than to perpetuate the survival of DNA. Life has no design, no purpose, no evil, no good. Life is about nothing but pitiless, blind, pitiless indifference. Pretty encouraging. (laughs) 
William Provine said, There is no evidence for God's existence, no purposes, no goal-directed forces of any kind. There is no life after death. There is no ultimate foundation for ethics, no ultimate meaning in life, and no free will for human beings. Julian Huxley said, Darwinism removed the whole idea of God as the creator of organisms from the sphere of rational discussion. Operationally, he said, God is beginning to resemble not a ruler, but the last fading smile of a cosmic Cheshire cat. Huxley went on to say, Today the God hypothesis has ceased to be scientifically tenable, has lost its explanatory value, and is becoming an intellectual and moral burden to our thought. It no longer convinces nor comforts, and its abandonment often brings a deep sense of relief. So clearly the Christian worldview and the atheistic worldview are universes apart. And it's no wonder then that the atheist is up in arms. Christianity flies in the face of every foundation and misunderstanding the atheist adheres to about this world and the God who is sovereign in it. Well, for Christians, God is the justification for all things, including suffering and evil. As Christians, we take the Bible as the self-evident starting point, then, for the discussion about evil and suffering. We believe that the Bible is God's revelation to us of the reality of his existence, and that he is altogether holy and righteous in all that he does, and that he sovereignly decrees evil things to occur for his own ultimate good purposes, And we believe that because he says that's what he does in his revelation to us. Furthermore, if God foreknows all things, then of necessity those things will come to pass. Otherwise, they cannot be said to be foreknown. Folks, think about the very first words that Jesus instructs believers to say as he teaches them to pray. He says, when you come to the Father in Matthew chapter 6, he says, when you come to the Father, the first thing you do is you acknowledge who the Father is. You set your mind and your framework of your praying directed to your understanding of the greatness and the mercy and the wonder of God. And then you may begin to ask for the things that you desire. And he says, let your kingdom come, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Jesus is telling us to think in these terms that we desire that your heavenly kingdom, where you alone reign in holiness and in perfection, that that kingdom will likewise be established here on earth. And Lord, let all the events happen that need to make that accomplishment here on earth. And as it becomes established here on earth, let our wills be conformed and subordinate to your will in all things. 
Well, let me give you some more examples that God decrees all things by listing a few verses here for you. Exodus 4.11, the Lord said to him, Who gave man his mouth? Who makes him deaf or mute? Who gives him sight or makes him blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Lamentations 3.37-38, Who can speak and have it happen if the Lord has not decreed it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both calamities and good things come? Isaiah 45, 7. I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. Amos 3, 6. When the trumpet sounds in the city, do not the people tremble? When disaster comes to a city, has not the Lord caused it? Acts 4.27-28 Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you appointed and anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. So in light of these truths, we're really forced to make one of two decisions. And folks, I don't mean for a moment to suggest that these aren't challenging verses to us. But we're always looking for a deeper answer than simply throwing the whole conversation about God and evil and suffering under the bus by trying to convince each other and ourselves that suffering and evil don't really exist in reality, as the atheists do. So then what is the right response when we read, for example, that God appoints evil and afflictions and suffering in the lives of human beings? And that he dispenses afflictions and suffering according to his will? and that he regulates the amount of affliction people receive and determines for himself how long he will continue to dispense it to them and that the sufferings are meted out by the same hand that hands out the mercy to us. We are honestly forced to either become exceedingly arrogant in our unbelief an understanding of how this world functions, or exceedingly humble in our place in God's world as we learn to submit to his will. Encountering difficulties in this life ought to cause us to consider that it's really an unhealthy theology that suggests that comfortable and happy things come from God and pain and suffering come from the devil or some other source, but certainly not from God. So let's look for a moment at how Christianity actually does justify suffering and evil. We believe that God himself is the absolute definition of what is truly good. 
And we believe that not only are evil and suffering real, but the Christian worldview has the only reasonable and logical answer for why evil and suffering exist in this world. One theologian put it like this. I'm going to read you three or four quote sections here. The will of God is so the cause of all things that we find every matter resolved ultimately into the mere sovereign pleasure of God. God has no other motive for what he does than his mere will. And that will itself is so far from being unrighteous that when it is carried out, it is justice itself. Let me help you to get a more unified look here. You see, we believe that God is alive and at work within the evil and within the suffering. And not only is he alive and at work in it, he is perpetually transforming evil and suffering into a glorious good which demonstrates his mercy and grace. It is good then that sin exists. God has decreed it and he is working within it for his ultimate glory. And therefore, in light of this biblical theological argument, one theologian said, we cannot doubt that God does well even in the permission of what is evil. For he permits it only in the justice of his judgment. And surely all that is just is good. Although therefore evil, insofar as it is evil, is not a good in and of itself, yet the fact that evil as well as good exists on the whole is a good. For if it were not a good that evil should exist, its existence would not be permitted by the omnipotent God who without doubt can as easily refuse to permit what he does not wish as bring about what he does wish. And if we do not believe this, the very first sentence of our famous creed is endangered, wherein we profess to believe in God the Father Almighty. For he is not truly called Almighty if he cannot do whatever he pleases. Or if the power of his almighty will is hindered by the will of any creature whatsoever. So I'd like to look a little bit more in depth in 1 Peter this morning. If you have that, you could turn there. I'd like to consider how the early Christians were persecuted and tie that into the kind of persecution we are under today. And so as we contemplate some of these concerns this morning, I want to look at Peter's first epistle as he explains to his readers that the suffering and afflictions that are coming upon them find their source in God's hand. but that suffering and evil also miraculously assist in working out the blessings of mercy and grace he bestows on them. The grace often following the suffering 
And so the recipients of Peter's epistle were actually suffering persecution in a unique way. These persecutions they were receiving were spoken verbal persecutions that were making them sense that they were being alienated and estranged from the society they lived in. Peter uses phrases like, when they speak against you, when they revile you, when they defame you as evildoers, when they insult you. And so these recipients of this first epistle of Peter were being shamed They were being defamed and reviled and threatened, insulted for the way that they understood how God is working in this world. Spurgeon called their kind of suffering a slow martyrdom. One scholar said that their suffering was an unconcealed phobic dislike mingled with invincible prejudice which found its expression in a language of detestation mingled with curiosity. That's a well-thought-out sentence, isn't it? It was kind of a hatred-of-what-you-can't-understand type of persecution. And I think like many of us first-century Christians were confused about their suffering and their evil treatment that they were receiving. And the reason they were confused is because they understood and believed the the promises of Christian theology. But they were struggling trying to put practical elements into believing those promises. They understood that God was real. There wasn't a question of whether or not God existed. They understood that there was a righteousness which which is revealed that's divine, that's from God's side of the world. And they realized that when they believed that divine revelation of how somebody is made right with God, and that they're justified by faith, as we've been talking about in the book of Romans, then they understood also that they have been made right with God when they believe that. And this has nothing to do with the merit of their good works. It's only because of the grace and mercy of God. So when they understood that, then they knew, as it says in in Romans 5, in the first couple of verses, we have an actual peace with God then through our Lord Jesus Christ. We've been reconciled to God. We've been brought back into the family of God. And that all is right between us and God because of the work Jesus Christ and our faith in His finished work on our behalf. And Peter says, now we can rejoice in this promised hope that we have of the glory that God has in store for each of us who believe. So in light of these profound blessings, the first Peter recipients were wondering, why are we being so completely rejected by the world? It kind of doesn't make sense to us, and here's why, because none of that was happening before we believed in Christ. This has all happened since we've become believers. They're asking, if we're so blessed in reality, why are we being rebuked for believing what's true? If God is blessing us, why is the world so disapproving of us? This must be a serious mistake. And folks, you don't need to read the paper every day or watch your news source every day to know that 
That sounds pretty familiar, doesn't it? How the world is beginning to treat the Christian perspective. This is the way Christians have been described by the unbelieving world right here in the United States. Of course, it's much worse in other countries. And 1 Peter shows us that God has redemptive purposes in his suffering, in our suffering. And that though they still remain mysterious to us in our individual trials, we know our pain and suffering is not meaningless as the atheist suggests. But I want you to notice something as as Peter begins to sort of unravel this misunderstanding for them. That there's absolutely no wavering in Peter's thought process as he begins to give them God's perspective and answer to this problem they're experiencing. Right from the very first verses, Peter explains that these sojourners of the diaspora are not being separated by the pagan world because of God's judgment upon them. No, they're being separated out because of God's sovereign election of them. It's God's election that has led to their estrangement from society. God in his election of these people is the reason then for the verbal ridicule and the taunting that troubles them. And folks, just let me remind you that God doesn't promise to rescue believers from suffering. What he promises to do is to rescue from the coming judgment And so Peter says in his opening verses, let me show you how the whole Trinity is working together in your new life to bring this rejection to pass. God the Father providentially elected them for a definite purpose, which is to receive the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls, and that is the goal towards which we are moving as Christians. The Holy Spirit has begotten them to a new life in Christ and has set them apart from the heathen world to begin to understand the value and purpose of now leading a holy life that obeys Christ who has saved them so that they are able to partake of the inexpressible joy Peter ends in 8 and 9 of 1 Peter 1 and glory as they move toward the hope of their salvation. And so Peter is helping them to see the big picture more clearly. And he's telling them that you'll see the rejection by the heathen world is actually the proof that God has been gracious and merciful to you. It's part of his design that Christians be rejected by the world. And then Peter begins to explain what it is that the Spirit actually rescues Christians from. The Greek word for this group of people to whom he's writing is actually three Greek words put together. These exiles, these aliens, these strangers to whom he is writing are those who are literally from upon heathen. The church who were formerly heathen, that he's now describing as aliens and strangers who are passing through this world, have literally been taken from upon the heathen by the sanctifying power of God's Spirit. God did all the work that made that happen. 
And so the Spirit is God's power from beyond this world by which He takes hold of a person on the inside, in their hearts and in their minds, for the express purpose of changing him from a heathen to a believer. And so Peter was saying, a believer then is someone who's so set apart from the heathen that the heathen consider them to be an alien and a stranger who doesn't belong here. And this is why he says in 1 Peter 4, 4, they don't think it, they think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, in the same self-indulgence and depravity that you used to take part in, and that's why they are speaking evil of you. So there's an obvious, significant, observable distinction now between the believers and the pagan culture they've been rescued from. And then in 1 Peter 1.3, Peter begins to show them exactly what it looks like to be outside of grace and mercy. And why it has to be the work of God's Spirit to take you out of that condition. The believer was a heathen who has been taken from the realm of the profane and the ungodly and placed into the realm of the holy by the Spirit. And by doing that, it sets off a catalyst that allows the believer to see the horrific nature of sin that they can only see in the light of God's Spirit and revelation. And so Peter begins to describe for these believers the, the seriousness of the dilemma they were in. He begins to show them what it looks like to be heathens in this world. those whose eyes are closed to the reality of God. What it looks like to actually be in spiritual darkness. Unable to see the light of God's mercy and favor that he's provided in Christ Jesus through faith. Showing them that the Spirit of God has rescued them from what they couldn't possibly identify themselves as being part of while they were still heathen. These sojourners and strangers couldn't see that the heathen world is condemned because of sin and unbelief and pride and disobedience. They couldn't see that it is perishing, he says, and defiled and fading away. And what the Spirit does is not only allow these believers to clearly see the hopeless dilemma that they were in, but the Spirit begins to make that change in the believer's life so much a reality that the heathen world can only respond by rejecting and reviling them. And with that new understanding, the believer now has, comes a joyous, eternal, promised inheritance which is reserved and kept forever for them. So let's think for a minute about what the Spirit rescues Christians to. To what end does He rescue them? In 1 Peter 1.4, he begins his explanation that these believers have been promised and guaranteed a future that is untouched by death. It's untouched by evil and untouched by time. 
And he gives us four features of our inheritance. He says we have an inheritance that is untouched by death. It's not subject to corruption. It's incorruptible. In 2 Peter 1.4, he writes that we have escaped the corruption, the moral decay and depravity that is the cause of our ruin and our destruction and our eternal misery that is in the world through various lusts. Our faith in Christ alone has enabled us to flee everything that subjects us to this perishing. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, 9, that the lust of certain temptations that have trapped the heathen have plunged them into destruction and perdition. And the promise of the believer's inheritance and our hope is the opposite of ruin, the opposite of corruption, the opposite of decay and destruction and misery. He says, secondly, we have an inheritance that's untouched by evil. It's undefiled. He uses a word that means unsoiled. It's free from any kind of defect or flaw. This inheritance that we are coming to, that we believe in, is entirely untainted in the eyes of God. Folks, this is an amazing statement when you think about it just for a moment. Because as heathen, we were all in the spot where we were stained and defiled by sin, and now have been rescued. And it's only because of God's grace and mercy in Christ's work on our behalf that our eternal inheritance is free from the stain of sin. And that's why it's such a glorious, wonderful inheritance that's promised to us. Well, thirdly, he says we have an inheritance that's untouched by time. It doesn't fade away. The English translation that does not fade away is actually a single Greek word. It's the word amarantos. It means permanent. It's where we get the word amaranth, which is a perennial flower that has the distinct characteristic of not withering or fading away when it's plucked from its stem and moistened with water. And Peter uses it to describe our immortal inheritance one that will never wither away once God plucks us from our physical life as a heathen. And so our inheritance is glorious in these three respects. It is, in substance, incorruptible. In its purity, it is undefiled. And in its beauty, it never, ever fades away. And finally, he says, we have an inheritance reserved in heaven for us. 1 Peter 1.4. The tense of the verb reserved implies that it's a finished, completed state of being reserved or guarded or kept for us. And it will be continued to be kept for us until the day that Christ returns. It's a promised inheritance once you have faith in the finished work of Christ. No human can inherit this blessing or this declared righteousness in God's eyes unless it's through faith in the finished work of Christ. And instead of panicking or thinking that something really strange is happening because of this rejection they are experiencing or that this is a fiery trial too trying for them, Peter urges that 
the now sanctified, once upon a time heathen, should be thanking God for this because it's a sure sign of God's favor. Even though for the time being, the Spirit's sanctification has led to suffering, ridicule, and rejection. And so Peter says, Rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and full of glory because you will be receiving the end of your faith which God is directing all things towards the salvation of your souls which is evidenced by the work that the Trinity has been doing in your life. Let me help you think then in conclusion here. What kind of people then seek God's kingdom? And I want to read for you three sections of scripture that are brief. I've given you the reference only. Matthew thirteen forty four to 46. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid, and for joy over it goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls who, when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. He's simply telling us that there's an incredible value to finding the kingdom of God. It's worth more than anything else. Matthew 11:12 through 15. He says, and from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence. And the violent take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And finally, that same passage from the book of Luke, Luke 16, 16. The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone forces his way into it. I think at the bare minimum, these statements in the Bible ought to lead to at least a modicum of serious reflection for us. Not only is it just not reasonable for otherwise intelligent people to toss the whole historical documentation of the scriptures under the bus as utterly untenable. But according to the verses I just read, it is extremely dangerous to do that. Anyone considering the kingdom of God with a thoughtless, fickle, mocking, dismissive mentality doesn't have a clue about the seriousness of what Jesus is saying in those last three verses I just read. Now, I would hope that you would eventually maybe look into these verses yourself in more detail because there's a lot of uh, different perspectives on this. But I'm going to give you my perspective, and that is that these last three scriptures are not a commentary about the violence the armies of unbelief feel towards Christianity. That's not the violence he's talking about. 
It's a commentary about the people who begin to understand the reality and the complexity of God's relationship to this world, how they desire earnestly to become a part of the kingdom of God. It's a commentary about how urgently believers are committed to being a part of God's kingdom once they see it for what it is. It's a reminder that those who would enter into the kingdom of heaven will strive urgently to enter into it because they know that it's the truth. And once they understand that it's the truth, there's nothing that gets in the way of them wanting it. This is saying that when you awaken to the reality of God in this world, you'll find it impossible to be indecisive about whether or not the kingdom of God is real or not. Think about this. Among the Jews, multitudes had been eagerly waiting and striving and struggling as they looked for the promised Messiah. And Jesus is saying in these verses that now that John and he had arrived, a new era has come upon the world. The kingdom is here. And John began the assault when he challenged the unbelieving Pharisees when Jesus came down to be baptized in the Jordan. You remember what he was telling them? He said, who told you to flee from the wrath to come? If you're going to come down here, this is for people who believe in the kingdom. This is for, for people who understand the reality of sin. This is a kingdom for people who repent of their sinfulness and look for God's favor and mercy. It's not for people who pretend to be religious. And Jesus completed that conquest at his resurrection. Folks, it, it's not a toss-up for believers about coming into the kingdom. It's not, you know, I can't quite make up my mind. It's, it's a pretty close call. I'm always on the verge of indecision. Let's see. Atheism or Jesus? Hmm. Sarcastic unbelief and rejection or total commitment? Just as a reminder, none of the New Testament writers approach belief in the gospel with a kind of lackadaisical, uncommitted response. No biblical writer ever wrestled for one moment whether or not God existed. Never! And Jesus means that believers take the kingdom of heaven by force with a holy violence, metaphorically. There's no room for doubting the truthfulness of the kingdom. Quite a different view than that of the atheist, isn't it? He says this violence metaphorically denotes a strength, a fervency and a vigor and earnestness of desire and commitment in coming to God's kingdom. I think C.S. Lewis really understood what Peter was writing in his first epistle. He said something very thought-provoking. He said, every story of conversion is the story of a blessed defeat. Every story of conversion is the story of a blessed defeat. He meant that so much of what is corrupt in us has to be defeated before we see the light of God's kingdom. 
the bent and the bias in our thinking that has to be overcome by the power of God's Spirit for us to see the reality of God's kingdom. It's just staggering. It can't be overcome by the flesh. That's why Jesus said in John chapter 3, you must be born from above. That's the only way this can happen. That's the only way you can be taken from a heathen to a believer and understand the reality of God's existence in this world. The whole foundation and the framework of our corrupt concept of reality while we were among the heathen has to be completely rewired. Kind of reminded me of Paul's words to Agrippa in Acts 26. When he's telling Agrippa what the gospel is in a nutshell, and Paul tells him that Jesus had sent him to the Gentiles to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they might now receive forgiveness of sins and that inheritance that Peter is talking about among those who are set apart by faith in Jesus. In 2019, just like in the first century, the armies of unbelief aren't going to stand for this kind of thinking. It's going to be mocked and ridiculed. So Peter says, be prepared to give a defense for the truth of God's reality and what he has done to us and for us in coming out of the heathen world and seeing the reality of God. I remember a friend of mine once said to me, well, I'm trying Jesus on for a while to see how it works. Folks, this isn't a call to a casual stroll through the kingdom. Peter said, you're going to suffer for believing this. He said, the God of all grace called us to eternal glory, but on the way there, we're going to suffer. And then Peter cautions the Christians, in the end of his epistle, not to suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer or as a busybody who's involved in other people's matters. But he says, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in the name Christian. Folks, I'm trying to convince you that there's all kinds of work that the Spirit of God is going to put you through just to open your eyes to act upon you and to overcome your corrupt nature and your blindness and to see the validity and the truthfulness of God's kingdom. We're going to have to run and wrestle and fight and be in agony to get over such opposition that the soldiers of unbelief are bringing to us, but also from all the opposition within our own hearts and thinking. Every story is the story of a blessed defeat of our ignorance and our pride and our corruption and our disobedience. In 2019, as a congregation of new life, let's claim faith in God's kingdom for ourselves eagerly. Let's be believers who are so committed to the truth about God's reality in this world that we are among those who take it by force. 
And that's going to require a few things. It's going to require us breaking away from the negative thinking about God. It's going to require us to conquer those old sinful habits. It's going to require us to wrestle with God in prayer. To strive against our own continued unbelief. To resist the attacks of Satan that cause us to doubt God. And being gracious through all those difficulties to each other with great faith. And refusing to rest until we arrive in the kingdom. We have seen as elders Andy and Josh and Travis and myself such a great demonstration of faithfulness in our body this year. When we read the things that you have asked us to pray for, we are just amazed at the faithfulness here. So let's continue to help each other to move towards God's kingdom in 2019 with a strong desire to have it on any terms he sees fit and not see those terms as too difficult or too hard because we believe and trust the reality of the promised blessings that make it all worth it to us. Let's pray. Father, you are good and gracious. Thank you for your revelation and the the Spirit's work in our hearts to trust and believe you. Father, go before us as a congregation this year as we endeavor to engage each other faithfully and trusting in your word and in your power. Help us to be folks that love each other more greatly and more deeply and to love you with all of our hearts and passion. May you be lifted up and praised in our hearts and our minds in Christ's name. Amen.